You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. As we have been talking about today, there has been uh, some escalating weakness in the U.S. high-yield bond market. And here to talk about that with us is Matt Egan, Vice President and Portfolio Manager for Loomis Sales & Company, which is based in Boston and oversees $43 billion. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, First, I just want to get your sense of the weakness that we're seeing. Is this uh, a harbinger of greater pain to come, or is this simply uh, just some idiosyncratic stories and an opportunity to buy the dip? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, to me, it seems like simply the, the buyers have stepped away from the market. It's, it almost seems like anybody who wanted to own high yield was already invested, and, and on the margin, we've seen flows come out. Um, this is we're in a, we're in the late expansion phase of the of the economic cycle, and you know, obviously, the next step would be a downturn. Nobody knows. When that's uh, when that should be coming, but uh, at, you know, typically at this stage, high yield becomes a bit more choppy, and you end up trading in in a range. In other words, the the backdrop, the fundamental backdrop, uh, is pretty supportive, and the range that you trade in is relatively narrow, and it tends to be driven by flows. And I think that's what we're seeing here now is is flows that are are pushing the market down a bit. Well, uh, but what's behind that, right? I mean, is there is there a reason why investors are not coming in to buy and uh who who's pulling out? Well, we've seen flows out of the ETFs recently. Um you know, there's been a lot of money flowing into uh ETFs. Uh, we've also seen a strong bid from overseas investors and I think, you know, towards the end of the year maybe that allocations have been full or or just on the on the sidelines for now. Um, but we've seen, um, you know, this thirst for yield. So while, you know, high yield yields in absolute terms at, say, you know, a little over 5% don't seem very high from a historical perspective. When you look around at fixed income assets around the world, it's still the highest yielding, one of the highest yielding uh, options out there for global investors. All right. So, so, so given that, Matt, uh, are you mm-hmm. in there buying? Is this, is this weakness that you see as an opportunity? 
We've been uh, on this. We've been on the sidelines. Uh, you know, this is a very much a bond pickers market. You mentioned dispersion in the index, and it's definitely picking up. And I think that has contributed to you know to spooking some uh, some investors. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that. But um, we've been on the sidelines. You know, this market. I always say, uh, you know, high yield. The best you get is par plus half a coupon because there's a lot of call option embedded in high yield bonds. And when you start trading up above par, so if you look at the index, the price on the index is 101. Right. The coupon is six. So your upside is 103. And at that point, you get called out. So, you know, when you're trading up, you know, we've come off a little bit, even that your upside is maybe 103. And on the downside, just flow driven downside, you you could go down to the mid to low 90s. So you get this negative distribution, you want to be buying on the on the dips. So um, given that you said that you're on the sidelines, you're not coming in yet. Is that correct? Not with, uh, not with, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be, uh, buying the market with reserves currently. We're only down a smidge. So what would it take um, for I, you to come in and buy? I would like to see the market down around the 95 level to get a little bit more. So say, say down 5%, which is a normal trading, trading range, um, for the market. Uh, you know, but I, again, I think we would stay high quality. I would not try to reach down, uh, the credit spectrum for, for, for yield at this stage. Uh, we've seen, you know, just on this recent episode of weakness, what happens is those disfavored names, it's sort of like the equity market, right? There's a lot of idiosyncratic sector and, and you know, the correlations are, are very disparate in the equity sector. It's very much like that in high yield. So you look at healthcare, you look at telecom, um, you look at retail. Some of those bonds from just the third quarter, so say September, are down, uh, you know, 10 to 15 price points. Uh, so you have to really be laser focused on the bonds you're picking. You don't want to step into those really deteriorating fundamental credits because you'll find out a little bit about liquidity in the market where, you know, apparently when there's all buyers stepping in, it seems like liquidity is available in the high yield market, but it, but it's a bit of a mirage. And once you see... Particularly buyers, when you go to sell, I would imagine that uh, if you try to sell it all at once, uh, all of a sudden the water has a way, the tide has a way of sweeping you out with it. Thanks very much, Matt Egan. He is a vice president, portfolio manager for Loomis Sales, telling us about the sell-off in high yield debt. Coming up on Bloomberg, President Donald Trump is set to deliver remarks to the APEC summit that is taking place in Da Nang, Vietnam. And the topic there has to do with protectionism, trade, and also security threats in the guise of North Korea. Here to help us understand more about this is Ariel Cohen. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a principal at International Market Analysis. Ariel, thank you very much for being with us. Um, I wonder if you could just sort of set us up for what you believe will result from this APAC meeting, because simultaneously with the meeting taking place in Da Nang, I mean, wonderful irony, that uh, the USS Ronald Reagan, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, and the USS Nimitz, three uh, uh, aircraft carriers, are holding military exercises in the Western Pacific. And that's unusual, is it not? Uh, it is and it isn't uh, taking into account our deteriorating situation uh, in the Korean Peninsula. I am not sure Mr. Trump resolved anything 
going forward vis-a-vis uh, -vis North Korea, and uh, for clear reasons. Uh, the Chinese influence in Pyongyang is limited. The relationship between uh, President Xi and uh, Kim Jong-un is pretty bad. And there's only so much China can do to change Kim's mind. And Kim's mind is hell-bent on uh, achieving uh, deliverable nuclear warhead on a ballistic missile that can hit at least Western United States, if not all of the United States. And that's where we're going with that. Uh, having said that, uh, on uh, trade, uh, also, unfortunately, pretty little was achieved. So uh, once we walked away from TTIP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade uh, Agreement, uh, we are no longer leading on trade in the Pacific, and uh, we are uh, in a hole vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in trade, $347 billion dollars and signing Memoranda of Understanding on this trip. And uh, Secretary of uh, Commerce uh, announced $9 billion, the Memoranda of Understanding $250 billion. Nevertheless, this is um, a drop in a bucket. Uh, this is very little uh, in terms of changing the dynamic of this trade around and walking away from the gaping deficit between the United States and China. Ariel, can you just give us a sense of what's been accomplished with uh, President Trump's trip overseas? And, and I would ask that not only in substantive terms, but also in sort of soft relationships that uh, the U.S. can build on. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of relationships with uh, Japan, uh, he strengthened the relationship. Uh, we probably are going to uh, be supportive in the rearmament of Japan and possibly make a buck on that. Possibly U.S. Um, major uh, military gear corporations are going to sell technology or sell systems to the Japanese. Uh, in terms of South Korea, uh, you saw a 180-degree turnaround in Seoul when President Trump uh, was not uh, sounding bellicose. Uh, but his instincts are to threaten to use force vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Will he cross the red line? Will he use force? I do not know. Uh, but he wants to look like he is going to use force to bring Kim to the negotiating table. China can help by ratcheting up uh, sanctions even more. Whether it's going to be effective or not, we don't know. In the past, the majority of economic sanctions against countries failed. The case everybody quotes is South Africa, but I would argue it was sui generis. It was a specific case. Uh, so we are in a very precarious situation uh, in the Korean Peninsula. This is why the three aircraft battle groups are there. And in terms of trade, uh, you heard what I said. I'm not terribly impressed. It's better than nothing. And I hope we will be in the position to move uh, the dial on that. But we're coming to this uh, negotiating table vis-a-vis -vis China as a beggar. Um, our imports are either not competitive or blocked by non-economic means by China. Um, our IP is being ripped off. Uh, and on Korea, we're coming asking China. Uh, we have an ask on Korea. We have an ask on South China Sea. Uh, we have an ask on trade. What is a Chinese ask? Here's the answer. 
Ariel, uh, just to give us your quick thoughts, though, on the relationship I'd like to know between China and South Korea in the military context, because those THAAD uh, missiles that are being deployed, they're made by Lockheed Martin, and uh, we might see them sell quite a bit more of them now. I hope so. We need missile defense. We need missile defense on the Korean Peninsula. We need missile defense that can intercept ICBMs, international, intercontinental ballistic missiles. In the U.S., we have altogether 36 uh, missiles that can intercept, give or take, and that is totally, totally insufficient yeah. against a possible North Korean attack. I've written about that. Right. Uh, we need many more uh, intercept, uh, interceptors in the U.S. as well. Yeah. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Ariel Cohen is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also a principal with International Market Analysis in Washington, D.C., talking about President Trump's trip to China. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Well, for the holidays, a lot of people are going to want different technological gadgets. And here to tell us what the most popular among them is Steve Koenig, Senior Director of Market Research for the Consumer Technology Association, which is based in Washington, but is here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios right now uh, with us, Steve. So what do people want? Do they want drones? Do they want Apple watches? Do they want, uh, I don't know, brain readers? What's, what's hot this year? Well, good morning, and, and consumers want it all. Tech has really become uh, a mainstay for holiday. In fact, uh, this year uh, we're expecting 170 million uh, adults across the U.S. will be looking for some type of technology product to give or, or give to themselves as a holiday gift. And uh, you mentioned drones and everything. Yes, I mean, certainly that long tail of all these connected products, smart home, uh, robotic vacuums. There's so much innovation out there that's really inspiring and exciting, folks. But sometimes it's just the, the good old products like TVs, anything with a screen. Uh, these products do really well, uh, whether it's the, the wish list or the gift list. Pim, you know, I'm just remembering I went on vacation once and saw somebody set up a drone. And they were so excited and it took a while for them to set it up. And then they started using it and it got caught in a tree promptly and they needed a, a ladder, an old fashioned ladder to get it out of the tree and retrieve it. Are you getting a drone this year? No, I uh, I don't think a drone would be great flying around the streets of uh, Manhattan. But having said that, let's talk about what's on the screen, because I note that uh, the screens that you talk about could be large or they could be small, right? I want to know about the large screens first. Are we talking about things like, uh, you know, an NEC? I mean, is there any particular model or any particular technology? Is it backlit LCDs and OLED? What, what kind of stuff is popular? Well, 4K TVs are really front and center. Uh, TVs are a perennial 
holiday tech gift. And a lot of people look to holiday time to, to upgrade their flagship display or just add to the TVs in their home. But this year, uh, we're seeing really, uh, on balance, just a massive wave of 4K TVs, 4K HDR TVs that deliver just an incredible entertainment experience. And as usual, the deals for these TVs are better than ever. The, the best deal that I've heard of so far this season is going to be at Best Buy, and that's a 50-inch 4K TV for $179, in-store only. So that just kind of underscores the kinds of deals $179 that we're seeing. $179 for right, a 50-inch yeah. television. That's right. And if you want to go bigger, of course, uh, there are lots of deals out there. I've heard of like up to 70-inch TVs for under $2,000. Oh, I hope my husband is not listening to this. I, I don't want that in my home. <laughs> Do you, I mean, where, well, who has I space I, for this? Okay. So, all right. So having said that, what about all the accessories that go with this, whether it is the sound bar and the, uh, you know, bass enhancer for audio? And what about things like even home theater equipment? Absolutely. Well, holidays all about deals. And so it doesn't really matter what tech segment or category, wherever you're looking, you're going to find some amazing deals. You know, in-store with the proverbial doorbusters that, that we often hear about, but also online. And yeah, audio is certainly part of that. We, we always, we see these bundling uh, deals that, that the retailers put together, really curating packages uh, for like, say, home theater. So yeah, those deals are going to be out there in abundance. When you talk about deals, I think about the other side and some of the retailers uh, that are selling these, as well as some of the electronics makers. Uh, does the fact that you are seeing such good deals, $179 for a 50-inch uh, television, do you get the sense that they're hurting, that, that they're having to slash prices that much to get people uh, in the door? Well, actually, our forecasts call for a 1% gain in tech spending over the holiday quarter. So we look at the entire fourth quarter for holiday, uh, a 1% gain up to $97 billion. Uh, and that may sound you know, lackluster, but it's actually quite healthy when you consider we had 3.8% gain in spending in 2016, up to $96 billion. So it's hard to repeat that kind of uh, gain year over year over year. But yeah, the deals are out there, but still people are planning to spend more on tech this year. Just quickly, give you 20 seconds. You said that you're a car guy. What in the car do you want? Well, I, I'll start with a new car because uh, my okay. car is about uh, – I drive a truck and it's about 13 years old. But, yeah, I'm really excited by a lot of the, the uh, advanced uh, driver assistance features, you know, adaptive cruise control, uh, blind spot detection, forward collision avoidance, a lot of these safety features that are, that are helping us drive safer and, and avoid those nasty collisions, but also all the connectivity in the car so I can bring all my content in uh, wirelessly. It's great. If it would only give us all free parking, right? Yeah. Thanks very much for being for with us. For our 70-inch televisions. My husband would totally want that. Steve Koenig, thanks very much. Senior Director, Market Research, Consumer Technology Association, based in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, we got news that dropped on the market like a bombshell. It was revealed that the Department of Justice uh, was saying that it would not approve the merger between AT&T and Time Warner unless AT&T agreed to subsequently, subsequently sell CNN. 
here to discuss this, whether there's any precedent for this, whether this is likely to go through, is Jennifer Reed, litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, uh, let's start with you. What happened here? Uh, you know, big surprise. Uh, we saw Time Warner trade off over 6% yesterday, down another couple percent today. So the market, and particularly the ARB traders, clearly were not expecting uh, this type of news here. So, uh, uh, you know, as Jen can talk about in more detail, you know, the DOJ kind of kind of dropped a bombshell, as you mentioned, and said, you know, they're really going to take a much harder look at this transaction than the market had, had been anticipating. And, uh, you know, I think the market felt like this deal looked an awful lot like Comcast's acquisition of NBC Universal, and that was approved with some minor uh, modifications. So the, the marketplace felt like that was kind of the expectation, and that was kind of built into the timing. Uh, and now the timing remains, as the company CFO uh, mentioned, kind of uncertain. And so that really brought a lot of uh, our uh, pain out there. Jennifer, as uh, an expert in the world of antitrust law, uh, I know that um, uh, Mr. Sweeney, he's trying to be a little bit diplomatic here, and you know, because you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But I'm wondering from the legal perspective, what is different about this particular situation compared to all the other situations that you've seen? That is the question. I mean, that's the question the DOJ would have to grapple with if, if they actually go to court to try to sue to block this deal, because there is a very long history, very strong precedence for this kind of deal um, in the same space, as well as other vertical deals in different spaces that raise the same kinds of concerns and, and possible harms in which behavioral concessions were just fine to fix these problems. Jennifer, let's just zoom out. I mean, is this legal? Is this okay? I mean, let's say that the, the real issue here is that President Trump, uh, and this is just delving into the conspiracy theories, this is what everybody talks about when they're not on air, uh, which is that President Trump doesn't like CNN and basically instructed the Department of Justice not to sign off on this agreement unless uh, CNN was, was sort of left out of this deal. First of all, is that a plausible reading of this or is that vastly misinterpreting the issue, number one? And Number two, if that is the case, is it legal? Well, I'll start by saying I certainly think it's plausible. And the reason I think it's plausible is because this is such a departure. It's it's it's. And, and this is something that there's sort of bipartisan agreement on amongst both Democratic and Republican um, antitrust practitioners and officials that this kind of deal doesn't generally cause significant harm. And usually that harm you can fix with a behavioral remedy. But here's the difficulty that the complexity of this is that there is an argument in court. There is an argument, period, that there is some harm that can be caused by this deal. If there was no harm, you would need no remedy at all. So when you look at Com Comcast NBCU, these are probably the same kind of harms they're thinking about and grappling with now, and you needed a remedy there. Um, so you can go into court and you can say, well, well, there is a harm here, and we do have concerns, and we are trying to protect consumers, and that is what we're supposed to do under the antitrust laws. The question is going to be, why? what's different about this, as Pim already raised? Why don't these behavioral remedies, which the parties appear to be willing to uh, agree so, to, what is a behavior? What is an example of a behavioral remedy? It's it's making commitments and signing on to an agreement that you will behave in a certain way. So, for, for example, not discriminate against your rivals, not try to 
try to try to use your leverage by owning great content or owning a lot of distribution to somehow raise the costs of your rivals who are trying to get their content on your distribution or harm other distributors that you compete with by using your own content. It's really just don't discriminate. License on fair terms. So, Paul, given the market response, do you get the sense that people are taking this seriously and thinking, wow, this deal really may not go through? I think what the market's telling us here is that at the very least, there's going to be a delay in the closing of this deal. It is not going to close by year end. It looks like it's going to be pushed into 2018. Um, you know, I think most investors that I've spoken to over the last couple of days continue to believe that the deal will close with modest modifications, uh, if any, uh, but that this may go to court, which then pushes the timing out of this deal out well into 2018, if not beyond. Uh, and that is what we're seeing in the ARB spreads uh, today. Jennifer, just quickly, let's say you were a lawyer at the Department of Justice and you didn't receive any telephone call or communication, but you knew the perspective and attitude of people in the executive branch. Could that influence you? Well, certainly. And that's another complication here. This may not have been a direct communication, but it just could be a desire to, you know, kowtow. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be following this. And uh, just to give you an update, the shares of AT&T, they're higher right now by one and a quarter percent. The shares of Time Warner, they are down by more than one and a quarter percent. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Jennifer Ree, antitrust uh, analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and our senior media and internet analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And I will just add, you know, I've seen conflicting reports about what the motivation was and how this is being spun. So it is, there still is a lot of questions about what exactly is going on here in the DOJ's stance. Yes, and uh, well, we won't know until we know. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.